Welcome to the Reality Revolution. I'm your host, Brian Scott. So awesome to return to Paramahansa Yogananda and his amazing book, The Second Coming of Christ, The Resurrection of the Christ Within You. So far on the channel, we've covered some different aspects of this book. Everything from his explanation of Satan and the casting out of devils, as well as a discussion of Yogananda's assertion that it's possible that Jesus reincarnated from Elisha and Elijah. There's been a lot of amazing revelations I've received from reading this work, and I really love the way that he wrote. I've learned a lot about different aspects of Jesus' teachings. He expands upon them. It fits perfectly with the teachings of the New Testament. And I find this to be a treasure. This particular chapter is amazing in its detail and explanation of the concept of forgiveness. In the 35th discourse of this book, Yogananda discusses the forgiveness of sins. In a mind-blowing discussion of karma and the way it occurs and affects you and how to overcome your karma, good and evil, and how to have your sins forgiven. Yogananda is as good or better as anybody that I have read on the channel. Joseph Murphy, Neville Goddard. I never considered him in that same range, but he is talking about the same things. I find his writings to be very accessible and easy to understand. The Forgiveness of Sins by Paramahansa Yogananda And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hasn't rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman 
hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they sat at meat with him, began to say within themselves, Who is that that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. Luke 7, 36-50 The all-forgivingness of divine love was demonstrated time and again in those who made themselves devotionally receptive to the Christ in Jesus. His words to the woman of sinful repute gave voice to the redeeming compassion of God that responds in full measure to a devotee's heart offering that is singularly replete with love. This freely given grace is similarly expressed by the Lord in the Bhagavad Gita. Even a consummate evildoer who turns away from all else to worship me exclusively may be counted among the good because of his righteous resolve. He will fast, become a virtuous man, and obtain unending peace. Reigning over every action of an individual is the law of karma. Good begets good results. Evil begets evil consequences. An evil action against society is a crime. An evil action against the welfare of the soul is a sin. The operation of cosmic law in regard to human actions differs from the operation of human law. A criminal is punished by the human law if and when detected and properly convicted, but if undetected he is able to go free. But the law of karma works unfailingly. It knows all and meets out its judgment accordingly. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Centuries of misunderstanding of biblical concepts of sin and its supposed abomination in the sight of God have created a popularly accepted image of the Almighty whose wrath against sinners is heartless, exactingly and vengefully severe. Intimidated man is made to cower before the judgment of his Maker, but saints of all religious persuasions who have entered the Divine Presence in interiorized personal communion, universally declare that his omnipotence is expressed not as vengeance, but as compassion, love, and goodness. Though God is the creator and sustainer of man, he has ordained the law of cause and effect, or karma, to govern life so that man himself is the judge of his own actions. By good action, he compels the law of karma to reward him, when he chooses to act evilly, it is then according to his own decree and invitation to the law of karma that he creates his own suffering. When a man works evil, there is no conscious force ready to pounce upon and destroy him. The cosmic law makes no conscious decisions regarding an individual's fortune or misfortune. The all-pervading takes no account of anyone's virtue or sin. Wisdom is eclipsed by cosmic delusion. Mankind is thereby bewildered. As man gropes his way through the bewildering effects of delusive creation, he fashions his own rewards from virtuous decisions or punishments from sinful choices inasmuch as his acts are in consonance with or contrary to cosmic law. 
When a soul is identified with the body and it sense pleasures, it forgets its divine nature. This forgetfulness in the throes of indiscriminate indulgences is sinful because the consciousness turns away from God and follows the path of ignorance. Man thereby sins by acting against the interest of his own true self. Hence, when a child of God chooses to be identified with the senses and sensory happiness, he is a sinner against his soul, a violator of his soul's divine happiness. To love sensual pleasures to the exclusion of the blissful contact of the God-knowing soul in meditation is the basic sin that begets, through ignorance, all other manner of sinful behavior. He who fails to seek and find the superior happiness of ever new bliss present in the soul, which can be experienced in meditation, will forget his divine self in the material lusts of the ego, the delusive pseudo-self. If a prince squanders all his treasury on whining and dining his wicked pleasure mad friends, then he sins against his own interest. Similarly, when man forgets his princely soul nature and caters to the temporary pleasures of the egoistically controlled body, he loses his right and ability to access the innate wealth of everlasting, ever-new bliss kept hidden from him in his sovereign self. When afflicted with the painful consequences of his errors, sin beset man cries pitifully for God's mercy. That mercy has been given to each soul, but man's egoic individualism, enshrouded in ignorance, prevents him from accepting it. The worldly man thus thinks that God has forgotten him, or that he is so remotely distant from human affairs that man's travails are of no account to him. The opposite is true. God is the nearest of the near, ever lovingly concerned and working silently for the welfare of his children. It is man who maintains a distant aloofness from God by forsaking him in preoccupation with material pursuits and when man then suddenly and urgently needs God's help, he no longer recalls how to make connection with that divine eminence. Originally when God created man, he did not deny him the knowledge or revelation about himself. As recounted in scripture, communion between God and man in primeval creation was natural and fraught with no obstruction. But man transgressed the law of God and thereby raised the walls of sin and ignorance, shutting out his perception of God, Adam, and Eve, in the beginning met the beneficent Creator in their daily walks of life. The Lord never denied them his visit, until they knowingly transgressed his code of conduct. In point of fact, God did not drive them away. Adam and Eve drove themselves out of paradise by their disobedience, their own action created around themselves the walls of sinful transgression through the opacity of which they could no longer view the resplendent spirit. Man's persistence in error is why he is ostracized, banished from God consciousness, but it would be wrong to blame God as being selfish, sitting on a celestial golden throne, enjoying the cream of his creation while consigning the earth's poor fellows to till the hard soil of life. The truth is, if God is omnipresent, then he suffers in those who weep, toils in those who labor, rejoices in those who realize the bliss of the soul. The great spirit wished himself to be many, hence he has become the many. 
but the many acknowledge him not. They have segregated themselves by their individualism, clinging to the delusion of separate ego existence. They are utterly forgetful that their individuality is but a bubble upon the cosmic sea. Salvation lies in breaking that delusion of individualism so that the little bubble may merge itself in the ocean of spirit. Each soul pristinely fashioned after its creator remains ever immutable no matter how apparently sinful the externalized ego consciousness as expressed through the instruments of body and mind. Sin only acts like a crust that encapsulates the soul and prevents its manifestation of oneness with spirit. When that crust of sin is broken, the ever-pure soul becomes the predominating consciousness as it re-expresses the realization of its identity with God. When the soul again realizes itself as a son of God, a true child of the immaculate, infinite, and that through dream delusion it only temporarily imagined itself to be a sinner, then the consciousness feels an engrossing faith in that reality. The conviction of being a sinner is imaginary and changeable. The latent conviction that the soul is a son of God is permanent and unchangeable, even though temporarily hidden in the mortal matrix of sin. When one has faith in the divinity of his soul and its all-powerful God-attuned nature, he finds quick freedom from the results of past sinful actions. If a chamber is dark for a thousand years, that darkness cannot be driven away by beating it with a stick. But if a light is brought in, the aeonic blackness is dispelled at once. Similarly, when a soul is in the darkness of incarnations of ignorance and evil actions, if the light of wisdom and faith in the soul and God is introduced, then all that delusive obscurity vanishes instantly. Thus, the consummate way that human beings can escape reaping the results of their past wrong actions is to change their status from a human being to that of a divine child. The evil actions of soul identified with the body, that is, as the ego, will have to suffer punishment according to the law of karma. But if the soul, by ecstatic meditation, becomes fully liberated from its identification with the body, and beholds itself as a pure image of spirit, it is no longer subject to punishment for any mistakes it made in its human state. Consider the postulate that a powerful monarch of a country disguised himself went into a tavern belonging to his estate, got drunk, quite forgetting his status, and started a vicious brawl with one of the patrons. The innkeepers took him to a judge appointed to that post by the king. As the judge was about to sentence the monarch, he came to his senses, threw off his disguise, and exclaimed, I am the king who appointed you as the judge, and I have the power to cast you into prison. How dare you presume to convict me? Similarly, the ever-perfect kingly soul during its identification with the body may commit an evil and may be convicted as guilty according to the judge of karma. But when that soul identifies its consciousness with God, the creator of the karmic judge, that royal soul is no longer under the jurisdiction of such judgment regarding its past dereliction. The more one establishes one's identity with the absolute and never deems himself a sinner, the more he will feel God's mercy. Love for God, surrender to God, will destroy in man the karma of ignorance. Pure love 
Divine love removes the barriers between man and his maker. The sinful woman who loved much found herself transformed by a sanctifying touch. I am impartial toward all beings, the Lord declares in the Bhagavad Gita. To me none is hateful, none is dear, but those who give me their heart's love are in me as I am in them. God is love. Every soul, even when the outward consciousness is deluded or in a wicked state, it is a holy receptacle filled with this divine love. No matter how deeply error-stricken man is identified with sensuous pleasures, when by meditation he consciously feels the love of God within himself, he begins to rise above his bad habits, regardless of the intensity of his sins. When man turns his mind within and sincerely seeks and finally attains God's bliss and love templed in the soul, he does not have to undergo the suffering linked to his previous sense attachment. This is the grace that was bestowed on the woman who loved much. With her own consciousness permeated with the love of God within herself and the help of Jesus Christ, her consciousness became free from her habit of sin of being identified with the compulsive pleasures of the flesh. Jesus forgave her as a potential divine child made in the image of God. In spite of her many sins, she realized from the teachings of Jesus that the power of God was within herself and that the power of Jesus could awaken within her that God consciousness, which would release her from the consequences of those past transgressions. This is what is meant by the forgiving of sins. When a criminal breaks a city ordinance, he is condemned according to the provisions of that law. But the governor of that state is empowered in extenuating circumstances to pardon the offender. Likewise, God being all-powerful and also his saints who are tuned with him and who exercise their divine will force can stop the fruition of evil karma in any individual. Only God and realized sons of God can completely or partially forgive an individual's sins against his soul, provided that person is devotedly sincere in seeking forgiveness, not through mere supplication, but through divine love. Shallow prayer and selfish fear of consequences will not cause God arbitrarily to contradict the just and sanctioned working of his karmic law. This would in effect permit man to continue in error without consequences, nor can God be moved by fitful emotions of praise or bartered deals of good behavior for past misdeeds. Man's recourse to the intercession of the grace and forgiveness of God, saving him from his self-created fate at the merciless bar of law, is that God is both law and love. The devotee who seeks redemption by attuning his actions to the righteous guidance of divine law, and also implores with pure devotion and faith the unconditional love of God, will be transformed in God's light of forgiveness. There is no doubt about this divine assurance. Any sin and its consequence can be forgiven. The repentant devotee who loves God deeply enough and thereby puts his life in tune with the all-compassionate Lord. Love is greater than law. It is the unifying thread that attaches the devotee's heart to the unconditional heart of God. Law is based upon impersonal justice weighed according to the principle of cause and effect. But love claims God as our own forgiving. Mother, father, 
whose all-embracing mercy abides whether or not the full measure of the law has been met. The sinful woman forgiven by Jesus loved much because despite the magnitude of her sins in the presence of divine love, she felt no condemnation but rather faith in its redeeming power. And like the man in the parable who was forgiven his greater debt relative to the debtor forgiven little, her love was magnified by the awesome forgiveness she received through the medium of her devotion and faith and the blessing of the Christ in Jesus. The removal of God's grace of a small karmic debt may be less noticed and responded to by a complacent, righteous man secure in his love for God, whereas the effect of overwhelming love and gratitude is roused in a man whose devotion and faith have merited a divine reprieve from some dire karmic consequence of his own sinful making. Thus, one who loves much is forgiven much, and one who is forgiven much loves even more. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they sat at meat with him, began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. Luke 48.50 Jesus' several pronouncements of his forgiveness of sins was a source of consternation to the people of his time who believed that only God could forgive the sins of an individual. They could little understand the power of Jesus as manifesting his oneness with God, enabling him to do all wonders sanctioned by the divine will. As stated previously, only God and the highly advanced saints can forgive others and free them from suffering the results of their transgressions. This is because they understand the exact relation of mind, habits, and the brain of individuals and can change the nature of a person's brain cells and mind, favorably altering karmic patterns. Some credulous wrongdoers consider it sufficient to confess their sins to an ordinary cleric to receive divine amnesty from their evil deeds because confession confers on them a sort of mental consolation and because they cannot see the subtle operation of the law of karma whose punitive judgments may not be discernibly linked in time or condition to their cause, they deem themselves forgiven. The idea of confession provides some measure of restraint and unity of moral purpose, but even better than confessing to human beings is confession to the Lord in a contrite surrender of pure love. It is unseemly to say to God, I am a sinner. What God wants to hear is that man remembers his true relationship with his heavenly father, mother, Lord, I am thy child. You brought me into a world that is fraught with delusion and temptations. Though I might have made mistakes, I am thy child just the same. We came from God fashioned from his own one being, and in him we will ultimately merge again. Faith in this belief, this conviction alone can bring soul freedom. Jesus said to the woman who was forgiven of many sins that it was her faith that saved her. Her faith made strong by the humble defense of her love released her mind from the grip of her senses and focused it within on her true self. When Jesus found that she was willing to quit her identification with her dissolute behavior, he stimulated with his cosmic energy the life energy concentrated in her brain and erased or forgave the evil tendencies with which her mind had become saturated. In Jesus' pronouncement, thy sins are forgiven, he emphasized 
that God's energy passing through him into the woman had been the principal factor in the healing. He then said, Thy faith hath saved thee, emphasizing that her receptivity, her conviction, in the unlimited power of God was the second requisite. The divine power of Jesus roused the omnipresent divine will to send the healing cosmic energy to the brain cells of the sinful woman. The concomitant release of the latent healing life energy in her brain cells was due to her faith, the revival of her sin-paralyzed will in response to the divine will of God through Jesus. O woman, thy faith in the infinite power of divine healing charged your sin-paralyzed will with divine will, causing a release of stored-up energy in the brain which reinforced with the cosmic energy for me has cauterized the sinful tendencies lodged in your brain cells. Now freed from the automatic reaction and compulsion of evil habits and sense slavery, you can be conscious of the revived peace of your soul. Go in peace. In another incident recounted in the Gospel according to St. John, Jesus dramatically illustrated the divine attitude toward erring children of God. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself, and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. John 8, 3 through 11. In this highly charged confrontation, Jesus displays divine wisdom, compassion, and spiritual skill in handling a most difficult situation. He threw an explosive countercharge amidst the sanctimonious hypocrites who hid their own sins and came to condemn the guilty woman and also to implicate Jesus in lawbreaking. If he dared to show mercy to her and thus ignore the law of Moses, Jesus shamed them by suggesting, No one among you is free from sin. Should you not cast aspersions of guilt and stones of condemnation first at yourselves? The words of Jesus are variously applicable in the practical affairs of life. 1. Only the highly spiritual man who is free from sin himself is justified in casting the stone of criticism at the materially minded man in order to awaken him. 2. Any person who is successfully reigning in with self-control, his own sin may cast a stone of helpful warning at an unrestrained sinful individual. And 3. Stones of criticism should not be cast at anyone for any fault if the accuser also harbors that fault within himself. 
The spiritually ignorant have no right to criticize others, but their spiritual ignorance. Individuals with specific sense attachments ought not to criticize others who possess the same weakness. Only persons who do not make the social mistakes themselves are justified in critiquing others' social errors. Jesus said, in effect, no one in the crowd was sinless and therefore could not with a clear conscience condemn you, nor do I. With my divine perception and wisdom condemn you before God, even though you have ignorantly sinned, henceforth follow the path of righteousness. The Christ consciousness in me has saved you from reaping the consequences of your past adulterous actions. Never again identify your mind with those insatiable lusts that were devastating to your true soul joy. If you repeat your sinful actions, they will fast become a habit again that will compel you to act sinfully, even against your will. In that hapless slavery, you will suffer dire social, mental, moral, spiritual, and physical condemnation from which it will be very difficult for you to be forgiven or freed through your own efforts or the help of others. Adultery is not a social crime, but also a sin against divine happiness. Adulterous behavior leads to marital disruption, social disharmony, and loss of the true values of love. Those who engage in sexual promiscuity rather than transmuting sex energy into constructive purposes devitalize their body of energy, their minds of peace and happiness, their souls of divine bliss and wisdom. Jesus understood human nature and its weakness of yielding to sex transgressions. He knew that social or religious persecution cannot stamp out unhealthy sex habits deep-rooted in the brain and the mind but that these detrimental compulsions can be overcome by a repentant individual who thoroughly impresses the mind with understanding of the destructive effects of those habits on himself and who adopts the proper measures of self-control, willpower, good company, and meditations to eliminate them. One such a repentant individual becomes free from the enthrallment of sex habits by accumulation of life energy in the brain through meditation which also summons the intercession of one's guru or savior and the redeeming grace of God, the penitent should not revive those habits and their attendant miseries by sowing fresh seeds of illicit sex activities on the tender soil of his mind. Thus the blessing and admonition of Jesus, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. The law of karma should not make people fatalists, but should enable them to diagnose scientifically all the hidden seeds of self-created potential miseries that they may in time be properly destroyed, or at least their growth mitigated by physical, mental, and spiritual means. Seeds of evil actions that have been depowered cannot suddenly germinate to cause suffering in one who is unprepared. According to the legal statuses of a country, a judge might sentence a young criminal to three years in a reformatory school, but the judge usually has the privilege to commute that sentence to probation if the young offender repents and promises good behavior. So according to the law of karma, a person who acts evilly must reap the consequences of his actions. But if that evildoer corrects his misbehavior, and by intense devotion, prayer and meditation appeals to God for pardon, then God being the maker of the law of karma can grant him amnesty from punishment, allowing him instead to work out his sentence through the amelioration of such counteracting ways as righteous actions and consciousness-transforming meditation. And when ye stand praying, 
forgive. If you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Mark 11.25-26 Here Jesus points out another truth pertinent to the devotee seeking forgiveness from past wrong actions. If one is forgiving toward those who have offended him, then the omniscient Father, the invisible but ever-present cosmic consciousness, which enfolds the devotee as he prays for redemption, will also forgive that petitioner's spiritual offenses. But if the omniscient Father finds an unforgiving attitude toward those who have offended his child, then he likewise may withhold forgiveness for that child's own spiritual sins. It is not that God whimsically plays tit-for-tat with his children, Rather, the cosmic law of cause and effect is active even in man's relationship with God, particularly in the beginning stages, when divine union has not been irrevocably established. Man begets the causes that bring forth God's response. Man's soul is a reflection of God, and when he misuses his free will to behave contrary to his divine soul image, he creates a distortion in his consciousness, in which God reflects to him a response of his own making. It is the nature of the soul to express unconditional love. When conate forgiveness is withheld by resentment and ill will toward an offender, God likewise does not show himself as forgiveness to that person of vengeful disposition. But when soul forgiveness is beneficently manifested outwardly to one's fellow beings, no matter how they have offended him, then he is imbued with the corresponding reflection of God's redemptive forgiveness. Jesus is pointing out that the code of human conduct should not be enforced by justice alone, but be tempered by forgiveness and love, a plea the devotee would be wise to heed. It is the duty of federal or civil law to deal with crime. It is not for an individual to try to punish a person who has offended him, even if it is obvious that he justly merits it. The divine way is to try to forgive him, because he is a child of God, although an erring brother whose immutable soul has no part in man's mischief. No doubt a wronged person also is responsible for many offenses toward God and man. But if the omniscient father finds that one of his sons forgives an offending brother, then because of that mitigating divine love he will relax the determinate law of cause and effect, and forgive some of the forgiver's spiritual offenses even as he forgave his errant brother. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespasses against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Luke seventeen three through 4 Take heed of the following truths. If your brother acts against your noble wishes and good principles, discipline him by telling him the effects of his evil actions. And if he truly repents of his evil ways, forgive him, even if he repeats his offenses seven times in a day. This is an affirmation by Jesus that no matter how many times a man falls prey to evil, the divine image within him remains untarnished and is worthy of consideration. As soon as the evildoer repents, the covering of evil is pushed aside to reveal the shining true self. When an evildoer repents but is not forgiven and is still accused and made to feel guilty of his forsaken error, the consciousness of wrongdoing is replanted in him. If his will is weakened by discouragement, 
and absorbs that suggestion, he may again succumb to error. Therefore, the psychology of forgiveness consists in helping the wrongdoer to remove permanently the mask of evil from his soul by encouraging in him the cultivation of good karma. Though one should not hold unforgiving feelings in his heart, neither should he express forgiveness to a wrongdoer who does not truly repent of his evil actions. Otherwise, it would only justify him to deliberate repetition of his evil behavior. But a brother should forgive an error-stricken brother as many times as possible if the offender really tries to forsake his evil ways, yet falls occasionally due to weakness of will and strength of fleshly physical habit. To extend repeatedly the hand of forgiveness to a repentant brother is to mirror the example of the Heavenly Father who forgives us all countless infinite times. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sit against me, and I forgive him, till seven times Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king who would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children all that he had and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all, and would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desired me, shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father also do unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Matthew eighteen twenty one through thirty five. The above story of the king and his servants is yet another illustration of the operation of the law of karma cause and effect in which jesus points out that the effects of already performed evil actions can be modified by the neutralizing power of prayer and good actions but along with receiving the mitigating grace of divine help and forgiveness the recipient also incurs an obligation to learn to forgive the sins against him of his repentant brothers when human beings tune themselves to God by deep prayer and meditation and realize their divinity, the perfect soul image within them, they need not suffer for their past human errors. But if after their ecstatic experience their consciousness reverts to mortal habits, they lose that freedom from karma and again subject themselves to be governed by the exacting law of cause and effect. Jesus used the example of forgiveness 
of one's debts to indicate the wiping away of karmic debt. That one can escape the law of karma by identifying himself with God through faith, love, and ecstatic prayer, even as the servant was forgiven his debt when he petitioned his king. But if after finding divine forgiveness from one's own karma by meditation, one again becomes meanly human by unforgiveness toward his brothers who sin against him, his re-identification with human life and behavior binds him again to the inexorable laws of limiting karma. Having been forgiven as a divine child of God, the devotee should conscientiously strive to retain his identity with his true soul image, remaining continuously forgiving and loving like his father God. The question arises if man performs an evil action against his brother and repents and is forgiven by him until 70 times 7, then is the transgressor free also from the operation of the law of karma? The answer is very complicated. One must consider the mechanism by which man is bound by his karma. Persons who think that repentance alone will atone for their evil habits and who keep repenting after each Repetition of the evil deed will not thereby receive amnesty from their sinful behavior, no matter how often they are forgiven by man. Repentance is not a cure for the consequences of evil actions. It serves only to keep the mind consciously acquainted with the painful results of evil deeds with the hope of preventing further repetition of evil experiences. After repentance, one must forever relinquish the evil habit." Repentance is not accomplished by beating one's breast in self-condemnation or uselessly crying over spilled milk. It means to so impregnate the mind with the consciousness of the repugnance of evil that one will automatically shrink from even the thought of evil deeds, not to speak of the evil deeds themselves unless the mind learns to abhor evil actions. It is very difficult to keep it proof against the allurements of temptation. Basically, if a guilty man being forgiven repents and does not repeat his evil actions, then he may eventually be free from acting erroneously again through the influence of subconscious traces left by the evil activity. He thereby incurs no further bad karma from repetition of their action, and the resulting good karma from improved behavior may at last partially lessen the effects of his past wrong actions. But it is evident that if a man finds forgiveness for his evil actions from his fellow being, that may not necessarily assure exemption from suffering from the law of karma which governs his past misbehavior. The only sure way for a person to find freedom from the effects of his bad actions is to strike at them at their roots. The karmic patterns of evil consequences one is created in his brain cells and mind must be cauterized either by divine intervention or by consciously engaging one's willpower and life force to erase therein all traces left by evil activities. In addition to faith, devotion, intense prayer, and good actions as already explained, scientific techniques of meditation are the surest way that man can help himself to burn up all traces of his past evil actions. In deep meditation the mind becomes interiorized and contacts the superconsciousness of the soul. This stimulates the impressions of good actions stored up in the consciousness and subconsciousness of the brain and counteracts the traces of evil actions there. Attention and life energy are inseparable forces working in the brain and the nervous system during all physical and mental activities of man. When the attention is centralized on a particular sense attraction, then energy goes outward and becomes identified with that specific sense pleasure. But by deep concentration, whether on a good or an evil thought, the attention becomes interiorized, 
when an evil thought becomes interiorized by concentration, such as when one broods on a lustful desire or on a vengeful feeling. It stimulates the impressions of evil actions in the brain, invigorating their fruition while diminishing the effectiveness of good karmic patterns. When a good thought becomes interiorized by deep meditation, the inwardly focused mind withdraws life force from the nervous system and centralizes it in the brain cells. The peaceful, powerful character of the concentrated life force stimulates the harmonious traces of good actions and burns up at the roots the inharmonious traces of evil actions. In summary, there are several methods of overcoming the effects of past evil actions, of receiving forgiveness of one's sins. Absolution from the karmic effects of actions contrary to the welfare of one's true self or that otherwise in any manner bring untoward consequences. 1. Divine meditation, especially as the devotee advances to the higher states of soul realization and God consciousness, is the surest way of burning up the prenatal and postnatal traces of all evil actions and of stimulating the traces of good actions. 2. An effective, though slower way to neutralize bad karma gradually is to bring all of one's physical and mental actions into harmony with the eternal laws of righteous behavior, including the practice of deep prayer, devotion, and faith. 3. An advanced soul or emissary of God, as was Jesus, has the power by will, force, to charge the brain of the receptive devotee with cosmic energy, which cauterizes the roots of past karmic evils and of wicked habits lodged in the brain cells and saturated in the mind. 4. There is an exceptional metaphysical technique by which great masters and advanced yogis can do away with the accumulated traces of many, many lives of blinding karmic actions. When such an advanced soul in the ecstasy of deep meditation identifies his consciousness with God, he changes his status from a human being with karma to a perfect image of God or divine soul. But unless he is completely liberated, he has to revert to human status when he comes down from his meditative ecstasy. So the law of karma with its determinative judgment comes to bring punishment to the temporarily changed individual. But that individual says to the intelligent law, you can't punish me for the faults of a human being who through delusion I dreamed I was before. By wisdom I have regained consciousness of my true self, a perfect image of God free from the chains of karma. But the law of karma insists, whether you are master now or were an ordinary human being before, you are still the same individualized being and therefore must pay for your uncompensated past human karma. The master, finding himself thus confronted, adopts an ingenious method to pay up and satisfy all karmic debt against himself. The master or yogi enters a state of soul realization and finds in the archives of his superconsciousness exactly all binding karmic traces of his past actions. He then proceeds to work them out in one or two or many bodies which he creates in a vision, a true-to-life experience. For example, if for five incarnations the yogi led a worldly life in which material habits were not overcome or desires were yet unfulfilled, in his vision he creates five bodies which undergo the necessary experiences and play out the parts of those five different lives in a matter of hours. Then the master says to the law of karma, there in the vision by the intensity of my concentration and divine consciousness, 
I have experienced in the materialized five lives all results of my karma. Now I am free. As soon as the karmic effects of evil actions have been manifested and experienced, whether in a self-created conscious dream or vision in a few minutes or hours, or in the ordinary events of life in a number of years, the karmic law has been satisfied and the penitent man is forgiven, freed from the particular karmic debt. Souls who are bound by ignorance do not learn the redeeming lesson of an experience even when it is repeated several times during many years or lives. But the wise man, by deep concentration, attains realization of the truth in an experience in a few minutes. The unique vision method of working out one's karma is not an option available to the ordinary aspiring devotee. It can be performed only by the highly advanced who are in tune with cosmic consciousness and thus have complete control over the all-creative cosmic energy, by which they can materialize visions or copies of actualities by the power of will. Occasionally, highly developed souls by the same method can offer their advanced consciousness to work out karma of others in a condensed, accelerated manner. 5. There's a fifth way by which great masters can work out the traces of their actions when they have also taken onto themselves the karma of others. Masters and saviors such as Jesus can offer their bodies to experience not only their own karma, but also the karma of others to help them toward liberation. The crucifixion of Jesus informs us of one such example. Jesus was not crucified by the will of God to fulfill some dramatic cosmic plan. His suffering on the cross was due to some of his own actions and the taking on to himself of some of the consequences of the sinful actions of his disciples and followers. Jesus knew that his preaching the truth in defiance of political authority and against the canons and traditions of religion would inevitably attract the karma of death in his incarnate work. He had created a cause that would, by the law and purview of the times, command a fatal consequence. He also knew that by forgiving the evil actions of his disciples and others, he had taken on their karmic debt, which he would have to pay with suffering in his own body. He consciously, for the sake of the highest gain in God consciousness for himself and others, and for working out the karma of himself and others, permitted his body to be crucified by that supreme sacrifice. He was freed from the cosmic constraints of his mortal incarnation and regained immortality for himself and others. On the higher plane of his immortality and omnipresence, Jesus, as a world savior, as with other saviors and great masters, continues his mission of redeeming souls. It is evident there is much involved regarding the forgiving of sins by God and by the advanced consciousness of man. The salient consolation is that every human being has absolute surety about his final emancipation if he tries his utmost to help redeem himself. Man is essentially and eternally made in the image of God. The sins of a million lives cannot erase the perfection of his soul. There is no reason why he should continue in existence of ignorance and suffering. In the Bhagavad Gita, the Lord declares to those thus ever attached to me and who worship me with love, I impart that discriminative wisdom by which they attain me utterly. From sheer compassion, I, the divine indweller, set alight in them the radiant lamp of wisdom which banishes the darkness that is born of ignorance. By the methods of advanced meditation and the grace 
of divine forgiveness, man can quickly work out the errors of his many past lives and become free, regaining the lost and forgotten perfection of his soul and its immortality in God. And this concludes the lecture of the forgiveness of sins by Paramahansa Yogananda. A very insightful and powerfully informative lecture on the advanced techniques that can be used to resolve karma. And when we're talking about karma, we're talking about cause and effect. If I burn my leg, my leg will not work anymore. It's a simple law of cause and effect. So obviously, if if I eat the wrong foods, then I might get sick to my stomach. Everything has cause and effect. Now, even though he uses the word karma, he doesn't necessarily talk about karma of past lives, but it's implied in here. And using his particular teaching on yoga, he gives some different techniques that you can use to resolve karma in your life now and in all lives. And so the powerful thing is you might feel like you're doomed because of terrible things that you've done in the past. But the truth is you can change your reality and you can resolve whatever it is that you did in the past so that it does not affect you in your reality in the present. The first is divine meditation. And that is when you reach a higher state of soul realization. It's that perfect place where you're able to go back and stimulate good actions within your mind. Another is to neutralize bad karma gradually by being good in your life through deep prayer and devotion. Another is changing the brain of the person which cauterizes the roots of past karmic evils. And my interpretation of that is that you change the programming within your mind. That it removes the karma. The karma creates a program. So it goes down to the suggestibility. If you have bad suggestions, we can resolve that. It can be changed. Then there's this amazingly advanced technique that is very enticing to consider. Imagine you're so advanced as a meditator that you can resolve all your karma. First of all, you become aware of the karma that you have from your past lives. And then in your mind, in your imagination, like a simulation, you're so advanced that you can live five lives in a couple hours, running all the lives in your mind like a computer, advanced quantum computer of some kind, and then resolving the karma in those couple hours as you play out those lives in actual realities. And he says that's a technique they use. They'll have some terrible karma, and they can also do it for other people. They can imagine that person resolving the karma in their mind. That's a highly advanced level of imagination, and not everyone can do it, as he implies. And then the fifth way is to take it into the body, which he compares to Jesus' crucifixion. But the key element here is that if you become the king, then you can pardon yourself. So if you become aware that you are God, if you become aware of your God consciousness, that you are the creator, in that moment, all your karma is resolved. In that moment, you are cured. So it is a realization of the God consciousness that resolves the karmic pattern and changes the programming and everything. You are forgiven anyway. 
And it doesn't matter, as he says, the sins of a million lives cannot erase the perfection of your soul. You are God, an individualization of God right now, and you might just be experiencing the karmic results of many lives or the life that you're in now. And that is not inevitable. The momentum of this karma or cause and effect in your life can be resolved through deep meditation, advanced forms of going within and connecting to your God consciousness, acting right, doing the right things. The second thing I got out of the second part of this lecture that's important, it relates to the mirror reality that if you expect to be forgiven, you have to forgive others. I have met people that are so angry with their ex. They're very quick to ask for forgiveness. Brian, I made this mistake. I don't, I feel terrible about it. And I really just feel like I need forgiveness from God. And, you know, then we talk about it and they go about releasing this guilt that they have over it. But then at the same time, they're super mad at their ex and they refuse to forgive them for the terrible thing they did. Or maybe it's a parent or something from your childhood. And I have had arguments on Twitter about this too. Some people say it's BS that you can't forgive everybody. But if you are in a state where you're not able to forgive anybody, going all the way back to the very beginning, no matter how terrible they were, you cannot be forgiven for what you've done. They may not even relate. It might be a small thing and a big thing, but it is a reflection. So you need to forgive everyone in your life. And once you do, you will receive the forgiveness that you seek from the Creator and yourself within your own body. So let me know what you think. Obviously, we make mistakes. We feel guilty about them. These mistakes can put us in jail. They can affect our lives. They can affect our health. And we are chained to this cause and effect reality. But there is a way to overcome this law of cause and effect. And that is through embracing our Godhood and reflecting that forgiveness on others by embracing that what we experience around us is a reflection of within. So we must forgive those who have wronged us if we expect to be forgiven for the mistakes that we have made. You can find all episodes of The Reality Revolution at therealityrevolution.com and welcome to The Reality Revolution.